communication is such a talked about topic, but it's one of those weird ones where there's been so much said about it, but we still struggle with it immensely. You know, I, I think that's always an interesting dynamic when you have a topic that everyone talks about, but then at the same time, we never can really settle on how you should get better at it. And through some of my work with Jeremy Boone, he challenged me on the importance of communication and made me think about, is it the communication you're struggling with or is it that you're not being connected? Welcome to the Business of Speed podcast with Nick Bratton and Steve Brownstein. From their 25 years of experience in business and training, Nick and Steve will bring you insight, research, and industry thought leaders on all matters of business, leadership, and training. This show will help all professionals improve the growth of their business, coaching knowledge, and leadership ability. As coaches and leaders, you are asked to wear many hats. Let them help you manage this balancing act with the Business of Speed podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Business of Speed podcast. I'm Steve Breitenstein and with me, Nick Bratton, as always. Super excited uh, to bring you some, some building on last week's topics and a couple of new topics this week. The first thing we want to kind of build on that Olympic lifting and plyometric and jumping discussion we were having last time, trying to dive a little bit deeper into what are our beliefs and how do we utilize those lifts in the facilities that we work at. The second piece is leadership. A common thing that you're going to read a lot about and hear a lot about is communication. And I want to challenge everyone listening just a little bit about some of those traditional ideas about was I communicating well or not? And especially in these times where we have COVID going on, we're not in person together all the time. Are we staying connected with our teams that we're working with? And then lastly, on the business side, again, building off of last week, we spoke about building a name for yourself and your community. And this week, we want to take a little bit further than that is now you've built a name for yourself. How can you leverage that and really take advantage of all of the efforts that you've done? You were giving a lot. And now what's that next step? Um, so a lot of great information we go through today. But Nick, super excited to be able to talk with you today. How are things going for you down there in New Orleans? Uh, things are going well down here. We are uh, currently, as we record this at the end of February, and it is 81 degrees. And so uh, a little different than the rest of the country. So we're, we're enjoying some of this early heat. Um, but outside of that, you know, things, things are going really well for us. How about you guys? Yeah, we are. We're rolling. You know, it, uh, temperature wise, it's actually gotten into the 40s in Chicagoland, which that means we're all running around in shirts and shorts, uh, just going crazy. And the snow is starting to melt. And with that in mind, sports are starting. This is Sunday. Tomorrow, sports start kind of really going, some of our outdoor stuff. And so the weather has been really kind as far as giving them an opportunity to actually go outside, whether our track athletes can go actually out on the track, football going out on the turf a little bit. The same with uh, soccer, just getting an opportunity to just play their sports again. So we're really excited to see some of that taking place um, here in the next coming week. Um, so with that, let's let's dive into our our first topic today. Super excited to kind of build on what we talked about. For anyone that's just kind of tuning in to this episode that didn't catch the last one, we talked about plyometrics. What are those really defined as? What are jumps versus plyometrics? Olympic lifting and some of the quick variations that we utilize in the facilities. And then are we actually using those? Because there's such a discussion often if you are only Olympic lifting. Do you only do jumps and throws and you don't use both? Um, so Nick and I just kind of broke down a little bit of where we stand on that. But today, want to build into what are those pros and cons of each of those training styles? With anything, the easy one for us to say is it depends. It's gray. It's not black and white. But we want to kind of go into that, just kind of share some of our thoughts and experiences on that. So Nick... Where, where are you kind of with this pros and cons idea to the Olympic lifts? Uh, let's start there. Sure. So, you know, I, I think, like you said, uh, it, it would be easy to say um, it depends on how and when we use these. Um, but, you know, I, I think that with both the Olympic lifts and the plyometrics, there are a lot of pros and there are a couple of cons on both sides. So as we talk about the Olympic lifts, you know, the biggest pro in this comparison is, we can adjust the load and the intensity. 
and so, you know, as, as we're going through it, depending on the time of the year that we're in, the level of the athlete that we're working with, uh, the sport that they are in, you know, we can change and adjust that load accordingly uh, based on how they are going through the movement. You know, if we're having some struggle or some issue, it's very easy to uh, lighten up that load a little bit. Whereas opposed um, in plyometrics, you can't change body weight. And so if we're struggling with say a bound or something like that, you know, we're, we're not able to make those same adjustments. And so from a pro standpoint, you know, uh, I, I think that that's the, the, the biggest advantage there is the adjustment and, and load as we go through it. The other piece is, um, you know, having some manipulation of the starting positions, whether you're going from uh, a, a mid thigh, a high hang, you know, above knee, below the knee, going from the floor, uh, using any variation of uh, pauses as we're going through the movements. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that also air adds a, a another variation that helps us out based on the athletes that we're working with. Uh, now, a couple of the cons. Um, the biggest con that that I see with the Olympic lifts is um, one, the amount of equipment that you need. And so if you are not a facility that is um, fully equipped or uh, you don't have a, a small enough group, you're going to be a, a little bit limited on, on equipment. Uh, the other piece is um, you cannot get really plane specific with this. Everything that you do is going to be done in the sagittal plane. Um, and so we can't add that frontal plane movement pattern. We can't add any type of rotational work. Um, and so again, you know, this is great for uh, building up that force development, working on uh, becoming a little more powerful. Uh, however, when it comes to adding a little bit of specificity with it, uh, we're going to be limited. Um, so, you know, when it, when it comes to those pros and cons, those are two that, that two of the biggest that jump out at, at me on both sides. Uh, Steve, what about for you? I know that you, you yourself have been getting into Olympic lifting over the last couple of years. I've, I've watched kind of your progression with some of those things. Um, and, and even getting a number of the athletes up there at TC boost into it, you know, what, what are some of the pros and cons that you guys run into? Yeah, I think one of the pros for the Olympic lifting is that you're able to track either the weight or you're able to track the bar speed um, pretty regularly. And if you don't have access to, let's say, jump mats or timers, it's not always the easiest to really objectively say that you're getting better at your jumps. Uh, you could say like that looked bouncier. You didn't seem like you were as squishy as you're going. You know, those are kind of subjective things we do as coaches that they are warranted at times but it's not easy to really track what's happening in, in those movements. So I think the Olympic lifts allow you just an ability to really see progress. Uh, and the athletes can also see progress for sure. That's one of the, the major ones I would say on a pro side of Olympic lifting. Another one might be in areas that you just don't have space or Chicago land. There's not always an opportunity to be outside and run or do any of these longer bounds and jumps but just because of what's going on it can allow you a small space movement pattern that can help you become a better athlete so i'd say there's definitely a pro on that that if you just don't have an area to go and jump really in or go and bound or what all the other variations that we do especially when it's cold outside it gives you an option there the con is i think the, the technique that you have to really establish in order to really get the best benefits out of it are time consuming and tedious and your athletes don't always will buy into it completely, even though you may love them as a coach. And then if they can't do the movements, I'd question and say, well, why are you trying to force them in to be able to do those movements? Why don't we just do something different? If they just physically can't perform the lift, you don't always have a window of time to grind eight weeks of technique work and say, okay, now you're proficient in your technique enough that we can start to add some load. Where I could have been doing jumps, hops, skips, bounds during that time period way more often and probably gotten a little bit more of a plyometric benefit and got a better power stimulus because of the need for technique issues. So that yeah. would be my con on that for sure. Yeah, you know, and so here's a couple of the cons that that 
I know you and I have both heard from another number of coaches that are out there. And, and I'd like to hear your um, input and feedback on this. So, you know, two of the things that we hear often from high school coaches is one Olympic lifts are dangerous Two, um, that Olympic lifts are hard to teach in a group setting. And so it's not worth doing. So could you, you know, and, and I know how I feel about these, but um, could you go through both of those, you know, one, the Olympic lifts are dangerous. So, so how do you um, go about that and, and tackling that issue? And then in the group setting, you know, what, what do Olympic lifts or what is the implementation of Olympic lifting look like for you guys when say you're working with five, 10, 15, 20 athletes at a time? Yeah, I think this is a warranted concern. But I think the number one thing is most coaches who say that or are concerned about that aren't particularly comfortable teaching the lifts or they don't have much experience themselves. It's not a dig on them. It's just probably the facts. When I wasn't really familiar with snatching, I wasn't super comfortable teaching kids to snatch. And so what I always ask coaches if they say that is, would you be uncomfortable if they were using a piece of PVC in performing this movement pattern? No. Okay. What if we had a 10 pound bar? Would that be it? Well, no, that wouldn't be dangerous. So there's, it's not necessarily the lift itself. It's the load that you're going to be asking the athletes to try and do that is causing the concern. And it's the same conversation I have often with parents in the facility about when we say we're going to lift quote unquote, their athletes. And um, they say, well, I don't want them lifting because it's dangerous. I go, would you be okay if they did a body weight squat with just their body weight? Oh, well, yeah, that'd be fine. What if they held a three pound med ball? Yeah, that, that's fine too. What about 10 pound med ball? Yeah, that's fine also. You know, like it's, it's just whatever your perception of what is that movement that's making you sound a little bit like concerned about it. And I think that's like the number one thing is you can get a lot of benefit without having to try and load it up really, really heavy. And you may have a bunch of athletes and your team may never be competitive in Olympic weightlifting, but they can still get the bar speed component of the benefit to their movements, which would be huge. And in the big group setting, I think, again, it's if you're comfortable with the movement pattern or not, it gets you less comfortable the bigger the group is. Because, again, I think you can go back to say, like, if you have 20 athletes, are you comfortable teaching them how to do a bodyweight squat? Well, yeah, I'm fine with that. How about a push-up? Yeah, I can teach them that. So it's not necessarily like the teaching the large group. It's that you're not comfortable enough with the cueing and the sequencing of the movement. And that's what's going to stop you from able to coach it well. You got to understand what your time frame is too with this group you're working with. If I'm with my high school athletes, I'm a little slow roasted to a degree because I have big groups and a lot of them are on a four-year plan. So in that first workout, I'm not really concerned about them catching the bar or getting full squat patterns from their catch. We're not pulling from the floor. We can go a little slower with what we're working on, whether it's just hinging at the hip for several weeks. And then we got to build our way up to pulls and high pulls and jump shrugs and then catches, catch to squat, then full squat catches. There's so many little pieces along the way that you don't have to feel like you're getting pressured to teach a full lift in that one class. I think that's the biggest mistake I made when I was a younger coach was trying to get athletes to perform the whole movement in 15 minutes and then be like, all right, let's groove that a little bit. It was just silly to think that that was going to be a great movement pattern that day. Just let it slow down a little bit. When I'm in the facility, we have different starting places for each athlete that comes through. They may have been coached a little bit. So maybe in the facility, I might have five athletes doing five different variations of it just based on their ability. And that's just a little bit different scale. And we're on a different time frame. It might just be a 12-week time frame. So again, I may not even choose to do Olympic lifts because we don't have enough time to even start to teach it. So we're going to abandon it completely. But that, that's how I always kind of think about that concern is more trying to paint the picture of do you feel comfortable teaching the movements? Do you have experience performing the movements? If not, then dip out of them immediately because you don't want to try and figure it out while teaching 20 athletes. Right. How about you, Nick? I know you've had probably tons of experience in bigger groups in the high school setting. What were kind of your decisions in that setting? Yeah. So, you know, the, the first issue or, and I shouldn't call it an issue, the first comment that we always run up against is that they're dangerous. And so like you, uh, the, the, my first reaction is inquiry. What 
about it is dangerous to you? What have you seen someone get injured? Have you experienced it? Have you heard a story? Um, you know, the, the number one answer that I get is I had a baseball player or a basketball player who had a bad catch who injured their wrist. Okay. Not a problem. Can we go through the lift without catching it? Can we just go through the poles? Are you okay with that? Um, I had somebody who injured their back as they were going through one of the poles from the ground. Great. Not a problem. Are you all right going with us going from a high hang position? So figuring out like what, what is their history? What is the context that they're making that comment from? And then how can I alleviate that? You know, typically the, the easiest thing for me to do is to say, coach, come in for one of the sessions, watch me implement the Olympic lifts. And then after day one, you let me know what you think. Because when they come in and on day one, we have 25 guys all with PVC pipes in their hands. They're typically pretty okay with, okay, I, we can do this. Let, let's do this for a couple of weeks. All right, great. We try empty bars. Okay, I'm all right with this too. You know, similar to you with, with you know, incorporating the med balls when parents say they don't want their kids to lift. It's the same thing when, you know, I tell the coach, well, we're just going to do it with an empty barbell. Oh, well, that's fine. Someone can't hurt themselves with that. You know, and so... It's, it's figuring out like where their comfort level is and then pushing right up against it. Uh, and so, you know, just uh, implementing those, those movements uh, based on what the coach is okay with at the time uh, and then showing them what that process looks like. Uh, now, when it comes to working with large groups, and so uh, for me in the high school setting, it's not uncommon to teach Olympic lifts to 40 people at a time. Um, and sometimes this is a group that has weight room experience, i.e. football, baseball, basketball. Um, but often it's groups that don't have any weight room experience, women's soccer, cross country, swimming. But no matter the team, we're going through that implementation process the exact same way. It's just the timing might be different. Everybody is going to start with PVC pipes on day one, and we're going to work on getting into a good hinge position. Um, and any of my kids that have been through this, they know that they're going to get in the hinge and they're going to sit there for 20, 30, 40 seconds, maybe even a minute at a time so that we can get used to feeling what that bottom position looks like. Then we get used to going through that explosive hip extension, that pull from the knee. Then we'll go through our power shrugs. We'll go through our high pulls and then we'll pull the bars out and we'll start to go through that. Uh, you know, my, my first year in the high school, uh, the... Uh, understandably, one of the coaches wanted us doing deadlifts and squats and cleans week one. Uh, and, and honestly, it took us about 12 weeks before we completed our first clean, um, you know, from the floor into a catch, you know, but it took that amount of time for everybody to do it and do it well and for us to be comfortable with it. Now, I know other Olympic lifting coaches, there are actually some down here in the area that are phenomenal and they'll have their guys going through full Olympic lifts in three, four, maybe even five weeks. And that's great. Um, but again, it's recognizing where your comfort level is. If I'm going to put this, you know, if I'm going to rate my skills, I can go through speed stuff a whole lot faster than I can go through, you know, Olympic lifting work. And so, you know, it takes us a couple more weeks to get through it, but we're still going to get there. And just like you talked about with, you know, slow cooking the athletes, I'm going to do the same thing with these Olympic lifts. I'm going to take my time and I'm going to make sure we're doing it well because I still have three and three quarters years with them. I've got plenty of time to work on those cleans, work on those snatches as we go. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's just, you know, when it comes to the team standpoint, it's the organization for me. If I can organize them well, then I have no problem teaching them what they're going to do. Um, and so, you know, it, and really for me, that comes down to the number of bars that we have. If we had 40 PVC pipes and 40 bars, great. I have no problem teaching that many, but I've never been in a facility that has that many, especially at the high school setting. And so it's how many bars do we have? We have five of them, 40 kids. Great. We're going to have five kids going through the Olympic lifts at one time. The, the other 35 kids, we're going to have to have accessory movements or uh, something else that they're doing while we're rotating through these movements. Uh, so again, you know, when it comes to both of these issues, I think it comes down to uh, your skill level, your comfort level, like you talked about, and then your organization of the movements. Uh, but there's no reason why I don't think any high school athlete can be going through these. Yeah, I think one thing I was thinking of while you were talking was also it's your level of expectation as 
the coach of what are you going to see during this training session and expressing that, let's say that I'm working with the football guys and their head coach is there watching me coach them. And their head coach has in his mind, his former all American who cleaned 350. And that's the standard for cleans. And this is day one that we're working on it. You know, being clear with him about what the expectation is for that day's lift and say, we're just trying to maybe get extension of the hip, big shrugs. We're going to progress to just feeling out some clean catches, not full squats. It's going to be a little sloppy. I know that, but don't stress. We're, we got it worked out. It's going to be better in time. And that sometimes takes the pressure off you as that coach too, that's leading that. If you're feeling like you're being pressured from a head sport coach that they need to be performing certain lifts and what they want that lift to look like, but you know, along the way, there's going to be some bumps in the road, be under, be communicating that early on. So that you guys both know what's happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how about Nick on the plyometric side, I kind of was talking about just that ability to be able to track it really well is difficult at times. You had mentioned to be able to progress them certain times because your body weight is your body weight. And a lot of those movements are pretty demanding. Where, where do you see like some struggles maybe with the jumping in the programming of, of coaches that might be struggling with that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think within plyometrics, the, the cons that we're going to run into is, uh, sometimes for some coaches, the creativity of it. Uh, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about plyometrics, it comes down to um, what can we, uh, can we do box jumps, broad jumps, uh, maybe a lateral bound. And then outside of that, there's not a whole lot more that they're doing. Um, and so, you know, making sure that uh, we have a, a breadth of exercises that we're going through, a, a large progression that we're going through, um, but also the creativity when uh, it comes down to progressing and regressing movements. So again, I, I talked about when we're going through a movement that we might be struggling with, we cannot offload body weight. Uh, and so, you know, if you're having trouble getting a single leg bound or an alternate leg bound or uh, going through a depth jump, something like that, we can't offload body weight. But there are some ways that we can create, uh, we can creatively um, create different exercises uh, that either help us to offload that body weight or that support the movement so that there's not as much intensity to it. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it comes down to the limitation of the coach themselves, uh, and, and what they can do with those movements. Um, the other issue again, around the same idea is then if, if we do have an athlete that's going through it really, really well, uh, being able to add more intensity to it, we can always increase the speed, uh, but it makes it a little bit uh, more difficult for us to increase the load as we're going through these exercises. Uh, I'm not a big fan of having athletes go through uh, plyometric exercises with like a weight vest on or holding on to another implement. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of dictated by the, the body weight that we have there. Mm -hmm. I, I would totally agree. I think one of the big um, progressions just in the bounding for us is having the athlete really try to tuck that knee and cycle that leg through fast is such a simple way to really challenge athletes that are easily completing just a regular alternating bound where they're, they're clearly covering some ground, they're under control, but you can tell that they're not, they're not being pushed at all. And you might have that whole progression where something for us might be an alternating bound pattern might be first, it's you're going to stick every single landing. Then you're going to land, pause a half count, and then jump. Then you're going to kind of do it continuous, but you're going more vertically than you are horizontally. Then you're going for more of a horizontal action. Then you're going for an absolute power bounding for you're going out 45 as high as you can. Then we're going to work into that cycle where you're really trying to pull that leg all the way up into your chest and through when you're doing bounding. But that would be that, that quick progression of bounds that if you have a group of 20, you can have different groups kind of doing different ones based on what you're seeing. Do you guys have like a quick one like that that you're utilizing and let's say in your bounding weight? Yeah. So it's, you know, we, we really start out with 
our hurdle hop progression. And, and similar to what you talked about, you know, we're, we're going from a bilateral to a unilateral, but we're adding those pauses, the holds, and then uh, almost like double hops in order to progress through it. So, you know, when, once we've gone through our bilateral uh, hurdle hops, then we go to our, our single leg and we're going to have them jump, stick, hold for a second, then go into the next jump. Then we'll have them jump a hurdle, do a double tap on the ground. So a small hop when they hit the ground and then up over the next hurdle gives us the opportunity to uh, stabilize a little bit, uh, to regain control before we go into the next jump and then going through those consecutive jumps. And once they get comfortable with that, then we can start to talk about, okay, well, this is the same motion as the single leg bound that we're getting ready to do, but we have to talk about the cycle. You know, we have to make it a little bit more cyclical as we go through it. So we really rely on, on those hurdles to get us up to those progressions. Yeah. And I, I think it's also, again, when you have large groups and you're kind of playing with this, do you say that they have to master each one or do you allow them to struggle a little bit kind of if they're looking great at a non-counter movement hop and then they do a counter movement hop and there's some struggle with it. Do you give them some rope to kind of figure it out or do you kind of say, all right, we need to regress back. Where are you on that, that fence? You know, it, it really depends on what they're struggling with. You know, if, if we're struggling with just the ground contact time, then I'm going to allow them to struggle a little bit. But if our struggle is in, you know, the, the, uh, posture or the integrity of one of the joints in the body. Uh, so if we're constantly falling into knee valgus, that's not something that I want to allow them to struggle with. If we're not able to get good hip extension, or if we're uh, constantly collapsing in the upper body and we're falling over those jumps, that's not something that I'd want to struggle with. But if we're just spending a little too much time on the ground, or if we're having to take that second hop before we go into the next jump, those are things that I'm okay with. And so, you know, as long as it's something that's not going to potentially cause us harm in the long term, then I'm all right giving them, you know, the opportunity to struggle for a number of reps or a couple of sets before I try and intervene. Because ultimately, that, that's what we're doing. You know, that's our job. We're trying to expose them to things that is ultimately going to help them to be stronger, more explosive. They just have to be able to adapt. We have to, as coaches, make sure that we are controlling how long that adaptation takes and making sure that they're in a safe position in order to do so. Uh, and so just making sure that, you know, we're, we're allowing them to struggle some, but in a safe context. I love it. Now, you had briefly touched on just the creativity of jump and hop variations, because a lot of people just kind of get pigeonholed with how high can I get onto a box? And if I run out of options on that. If I'm doing a bound, what, what else can I do? I'm bounding already. You know, I'm, I've done a depth jump. What else can I do? Make the boxes higher. What, what are my options? What are some of the, the ones that you feel are kind of solid variations, but still align with what we've been talking about so far? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think this is one of the most underrated pieces for plyometric and jump training. Uh, and I'm going to make sure I include jump training because that's going to be a big piece of this. Uh, but getting out of, and, and this is all of the weight room, getting out of the sagittal plane. So getting out of those movements where we're just moving up and down or we're just moving straight ahead. So much of sport is moving laterally. And so, you know, one of the most common jumping exercises that we're going to incorporate early on is going to be a lateral bound or a Hayden and, and getting some of that lateral explosiveness and lateral extension into the program. Um, but after we progress through that, starting to add more of the reactive lateral piece. And so, you know, we might do a short bound out to our left and then a larger explosive bound out to the right with a very short contact time. Um, we might do a drop off to the left side of, of a hurdle uh, and then have to bound directly back out to the right. Um, one of the things that we're doing a lot of right now is uh, doing a lateral bound into a box jump. So we're absorbing that lateral force and then having to redirect it into the sagittal plane uh, and, and go into a vertical force. And so, you know, again, we are trying to create these, these exercises where um, it's not necessarily just sport specific, um, but it's, it's specific to being able to control our body, the force that we create, the force that we absorb and be efficient as we're going through those movements. Uh, you know, 
I think that uh, especially in, in sports like uh, baseball, uh, tennis, golf, lacrosse, you know, we're not doing enough of one, these frontal plane movements like the lateral bounds, but rotational movements, you know, going through rotational box jumps, going through rotational hurdle hops, adding some type of rotation to our lateral bound. We do a lot of 45 degree and 90 degree lateral bounds, um, going into, some type of rotation as we go through that jump. So it's not necessarily just that abduction at the hip, but almost an abduction and extension of the hip as well. And so, you know, just trying to add all of these different components, because, you know, we've talked about this in the past, we're a facility that from an explosiveness and, and a power standpoint, we're doing everything. We're doing the speed and agility. We're doing the plyometrics. We're doing the Olympic lifting. Well, if I have an athlete that is a great Olympic lifter and say we have no problem doing our cleans from the floor at 225 or 275, but then we get out there on the field and we can't do a lateral bound or a broad jump and get full hip extension, then am I really doing them any service? Does it matter that they can clean 275, but they can't actually extend through the hip when they're going through some of these drills? And so there are times where, you know, the, the Olympic movements can help us to create the power and explosiveness that we need, but we have to have the plyometric and the jumping movements in order to create the context that we're going to need out on the field. Yeah. I think that's a huge piece of it for sure is, can you actually express that power through movement? And that would be one of the detriments of the Olympic lifts is it's not a, a repeat type movement. You're kind of expressing force and expressing a catch one time. That's the movement where all these bounds cuts, it's multiple contacts in multiple directions and multiple planes of motion. Olympic lifts are super important for getting that strength and that power ability. But if you can't put it out there on the field, was it really important at all? You know, one of the things that we'll talk about on a staff is even using Instagram, YouTube as a resource, somebody will bring up a video be like, what do you guys think of this jump variation? You're like, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, there's probably no wrong jumping variation if it gets what is necessary for that athlete to become better. Like if I do a 90 degree turn, but now this one is a 45 degree, this is a 110 degree rotational type move. Like which one's better? I, I don't always know. I'm like, but let's see how our athlete handles it. You know, are they creating the right force vectors? Uh, one of the big things that I do on Saturdays is our boxes of death, which I call them because it makes my athletes laugh, but it's a series of just kind of some broad jump to a little hurdle jump to big hurdle to jump to a box jump to a drop jump to a hurdle jump, but it's a randomized pattern. And so the athletes aren't able to really get into this rhythm of what they normally do on this, which is when we do this, our regular hurdle jumps on other days, we're working on fundamentals and it's essentially a hurdle every yard to a yard and a half. They get that pattern of how to jump and hold it and take care of that, you know, but then on Saturdays, I give them this, this random one that I just kind of put together that day. That's going to come kind of combine a bunch of the different movement patterns. And sometimes I'll say, you have to land on one foot over this hurdle, two feet onto this box, one foot onto this box, tuck jump over the top of this one, jump with straight legs over this one, you know, but it's just kind of challenging those athletic properties of good intent on jumps, but then you're having to be plyometric at the same time. And that just allows, it's not anything new, but the way it's put together feels new for the athletes. Like we do box jumps, we do hurdle jumps, we do broad jumps, but kind of combining them into a little sequence changes the stimulus. Right, right, absolutely. So Nick, what would you, the, the, the finish this topic up just a little bit for today, I wanted to touch just on, how do you feel then the importance of those Olympic lifts are falling as a coach? Cause we've just, we were talking about just some of the cons and the pros talking about all these importance of all these plyometric movements to do. Like, is there really value in that Olympic lift versus that plyometric? Where, where is that value of the variations of it? Yeah, so absolutely. You know, I, I think that the Olympic lifting offers a piece that, you know, the, the plyometrics and the jump training doesn't offer uh, one in uh, the, the load that we can use, but two 
and the and the eccentric benefit as well. You know, one one of the pieces that I don't feel like enough people spend time on is the importance of eccentrics in sport. You know, our ability to absorb force, and I think that if we had better control of eccentrics, we would also see a dramatic decrease in injury rates as well. You know, we, we talk about one of the number one reasons why we end up pulling our hamstring. It's the eccentric load on the hamstring as we make touchdown. You know, when, when you look at some of these non-contact um, uh, injuries as far as ACLs and things like that, a lot of times it's, it's the eccentric load on that joint when we're making contact with the ground. And so, um, I don't by any means think that this is the cure for everything. However, I do think that it plays a, a large uh, part in this. So, you know, as we go through those Olympic lifts, our ability to catch and catch well. And so, and that's the, that's the important piece is catching well, you know, and so making sure that our feet are under our hips or under our shoulders, make sure that we are absorbing and not just dropping to the bottom, not getting slammed to the bottom of that squat, making sure that we're able to maintain integrity throughout the body, that we're not getting folded over, shoulders aren't being pulled forward. Um, when we're, if you're going through a snatch or some type of jerk variation that we do have a good solid catch as we go through it, we find a good, um, strong footing when, when we hit the ground. And so, you know, I, I think that a couple of the pieces that the Olympic lifts offer that, that is so important is that loading piece, uh, and, and the eccentric control piece. Yeah. I, when you were saying that I was thinking to, when I saw Al Vermeil speak, at the Olympic weightlifting symposium in Chicago. And he had a slide, I think of Horace Grant catching a clean. Yeah. If you remember Horace Grant from the Bulls uh, back in the 90s, they're in the big championship run. And then he had a picture side by side of Horace Grant absorbing force while he's playing defense in the post. And it was kind of cool because the angles of everything was about the same when he was upright catching it versus when he was leaned forward, slightly absorbing contact probably from like Hakeem Olajuwon or someone like that. But he was just saying that he believed Horace Grant was able to defend well in the post because he had been exposed to not just his own body weight doing jumps, but this external load that he had to catch, brace himself, absorb it, control it. So in the post, he's able to do it. And he made the same comparison to like a linebacker in football where you're making contact with a running back. It's not just about your body weight. It's your body weight to rapidly absorb force. And you don't always get out, out of just squatting because the bar is already on your back. You're braced and then you're going down. But that Olympic variation allows you to kind of have that moment where there's no load whatsoever on your body and then you're rapidly having to handle it. So I think it, that was a, one that you nailed on the head for Al Vermeil and uh, made a lot of sense to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Steve, as we kind of move into the next segment here, you know, for the leadership piece today, uh, we're going to talk about communication. Um, and this is, this is communication for, um, within the team, but also as a leader to the team. And so, uh, you know, one, what are your thoughts on just communication, communication styles, uh, at, as a leader, um, and then we'll kind of get into the situational piece after that. Yeah. Yeah. I think communication is such a talked about topic, but it's one of those weird ones where there's been so much said about it, but we still struggle with it immensely. You know, I, I think that's always an interesting dynamic when you have a topic that everyone talks about, but then at the same time, we never can really settle on how you should get better at it. And through some of my work with Jeremy Boone, he challenged me on, the importance of communication and made me think about, is it the communication you're struggling with or is it that you're not being connected? And that one made me think pretty deeply about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I'd have to agree with them that when you're connected to the people on your staff, to your athletes, to your spouse, you know, the communication piece always seems a little bit easier. There's never these blocks in what you're talking about. Um, and for communication, we kind of define that more as you're expressing thoughts often about things you want from the other person. Then you feel like you've communicated it to them, right? When you're truly connected and you're talking with someone, 
a lot of the time it's going to be what you want for them. And that's kind of the, the separator on that one. And you'll think about that now as you reflect in that for a second is just when you're talking to your athletes, how many times is the wording come off as what you want from them? I need you at this lift. I need you at this practice. I need this. I, I want you to do this. You need to do this. The same thing when maybe you're just talking to a significant other where it's, I need this. I need you to do this for me. I need it's not always with that context of what do you want for them? And that's why you're having this discussion. And I think that's the, the piece that you got to always kind of keep in mind is that connection piece. Number one, you'll have, be able to communicate better after that. But I think that what you touched on, Nick, in the next part was the communication styles. I think that is still very important, even if you are connected, because without someone hearing you, you're not communicating. And without you listening, you're not communicating as well. And that is a piece that gets lost often um, from leaders who maybe aren't on the servant leader side. You know, we've talked about the different leadership styles before, but that kind of do as I say, follow along, or that if you're with me, awesome. If you're not, you're against me type leader. They're not probably going to be communicating as well. And they're definitely not going to be hearing whoever they're talking with because uh, they're trying to express their own thoughts. Um, but Nick, I know that you have a ton of experience kind of thinking about more of the, the personality tests, the different styles, even maybe like love languages along the way. These are all great kind of books to check out. But what have you seen as some of those different communication styles that you've experienced to you, but then also that maybe you've caught yourself with your staff kind of communicating in different ways? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I love that, that idea of um, communicating versus connecting. Um, that, that's really interesting. I haven't heard that before. Um, so, you know, I, I think that when it comes to, you know, working with, with other individuals, um, it's first of all, trying to understand how, you know, the position that they're in, whether it's the time of life in their life that they're in, uh, whether it's what they have going on that day or that week, um, or just how the things in the, in the facility are impacting them. Because what I say can be seen very differently or heard very differently from that person based on the lens that they're hearing it through. Um, and so, you know, the, the first thing that I've realized is that uh, I have to understand what a good time to communicate and based on what you said, connect would be um, because there may be times that they're just not ready to communicate, you know, based on what we have going on, whether things are busy, they're tired, thing, things are just stressful in their life in the moment, you know, it's just not a good time to have that conversation or that discussion. Um, and then understanding what, what do they value? You know, what, what is important in their life? And so there may be things that I place a lot of weight on. And if they don't place the same amount of weight on it, then we're not going to be going to be able to have the same conversation because I'm looking at it, this conversation through a specific lens and they're looking at it um, another way. You know, you, you talk about personalities and, and, you know, the Enneagram and uh, I'm, I'm very much a task oriented person knowing what the task is, getting it done, what, whatever that may be. Uh, whereas there may be someone else that I'm working with that's not so much a task person. Uh, they, they like to get things done, but they're more of a relationship person. And so uh, they want to spend their time with others, uh, investing in others, having those individuals invest in them. And so, you know, making sure that when we are talking about uh, things that need to get done, or we're talking about what our next steps are as a facility, making sure that we're having a conversation that um, makes sense to them and they understand how this is going to affect what they do and in, in those relationships that they have. Um, and so again, you know, it, a, a lot of times it comes down to those lenses that we're looking at things through and, and just making sure that uh, we're, we're somewhat uh, understanding and empathetic uh, to those individuals and, and kind of what they're going through at that time of their life. Yeah. And with that idea of there's so much going on, they're busy. 
that's been a part that I feel has been exposing leaders like crazy during this COVID time is it's so easy to say there's so much going on. It's so chaotic. And all of a sudden you haven't touched base with an employee for a week and a half, two weeks. And all of a sudden you see something that maybe needs to get addressed, but then you come at them and just tell them like, Hey, you're doing this wrong. You need to get this cleaned up. That person is always going to have that feeling of where have you been for the last two weeks? You haven't said boo to me. You have no idea what's going on in my life, but then you're just going to call me out on this one thing, even though I've been grinding at all these things over the last two weeks. And as a leader, if you've ever been caught in that situation, you're setting yourself up to fail so badly. And the piece about when, when Nick was just describing needing to understand what's going on in everyone's life, they're always going to hear you better when you have something that you need to kind of talk to them about that's more task oriented, even if they're not a task person. If I can say, Nick, what's going on? Let, let me hear about kind of the new baby you guys got at home. How's business going? You guys just had a, a hurricane scare down there a couple months ago. What's going on with all that stuff? Let me hear you. And I, as a leader, hear him. Let him know that I, I know what's going on with them. I, I got empathy for it. And then I say, all right, I hear you on this. This is going on right now. I need this from you. Do you think you can do it? You know, he now knows that I, I understand his situation. And what I'm asking him can get done. I'm not just going to dump something on him. Or if I'm just going to follow up about something that happened, he now knows that I understand everything that was going on in his life. And that maybe for me as a leader, I needed to understand better what was going on in his life. So I'm going to say, hey, I understand everything that's going on. Last week, this happened. I just want to touch base so that it's not like something just falls away. I just want to touch base with you. I understand there's a lot going on, man. And so don't sweat it. But this is kind of, we just need to talk about this briefly. And he's going to come back and say, yeah, I, you know what? I did mess up. I got distracted by this, you know, and I'm going to say like, those are real, those are real excuses. Those aren't made up excuses. They're real, but we also have to still get this kind of stuff done. Those kind of situations happen all the time. You know, a two week break as a COVID is pretty extreme, but even three days, you know, how many times does it feel like you're passing in the wind essentially with employees or other coaches or sport coaches, athletes at times, where it's just like a quick workout. You didn't even have a chance to really touch base with them, but then all of a sudden you're going to try to hold them accountable to something in the next breath. They don't feel heard. You don't know what's going on in their life. You know? And I think that's that piece where you say, was I connected with so-and-so prior to this conversation or were we disconnected? Because if you're disconnected, yeah, there's going to be this confusion. It's awkward. Almost. There's this buildup of anxiety about the conversation you know, when you're completely dialed in with your teammates, with your coworkers, with your employees, with your athletes, there's never really anxiety about having to call somebody out on something, hold them accountable to something, because you're talking about it so often that it's just going to be a small point of just lapse in judgment. But when it goes for weeks, and now that's compounded, possibly, it's built up in your head because of the story you've created about it. All of a sudden, they don't barely remember it because now they're very defensive because you haven't connected regularly about things. It just sets you up so badly that it's going to be not heard on either side. Yeah, yeah, Steve, I think that's great. So when when we talk about, you know, this communication and, and you know, you had discussed uh, people who are having bad times and, and struggling with some things and, and connect and, and checking in. How does, as a leader, how does our communication style or maybe even frequency need to change when the environment changes? So say uh, in a facility like yours or mine, you know, our busy season versus our slower season, or when, you know, we're working with athletes in the high school and, um, you know, we know that, uh, we're going through, um, you know, maybe some good times. We're winning. We're successful. The team is doing great. Or some bad times when the team is struggling. How how do we need to adjust our communication style or frequency in order to meet what the team, what the the group is needing? Yeah, I think that the number one thing is to stay as consistent 
as you possibly can to avoid the communication appearing conditional. To say that I only communicate with you when things are going bad, or I only communicate with you when things are going well. You know, it, communication, that's what's so dangerous sometimes is that it has this conditional feel to it. When you're just being connected together the entire time, it may just be a text message, you know, like in our facility, our owner might be doing NFL combine prep right now. And some of our coaches that come through a little bit later in the day, they may only come across paths maybe for like an hour. And during slow periods of time, you can get away with unintentional interactions that keep you guys talking regularly because there's just time in the day. You might be working out and you just kind of chat a little bit for 15 minutes. You might just be crossing paths out of the office and you talk for 15 minutes. Well, those passing periods are gone now. Every minute is scheduled with something going on. And now it's, it's really what you chose as a leader is that it might seem unfair, but you have to go out of your way to bridge those gaps and intentionally find moments of time to either talk on the phone, jump on a Zoom call, send a text message. And you need to send those often without any agenda behind them. They have to be pure points of contact so that then when there are moments where we need all hands on deck or you need to communicate about something that's happened, it doesn't feel so random and everyone's going to rally quicker because they don't feel like they're just lost on their own in their own silo, which quickly can happen depending on the type of staff you might have, how big it is, silos form fast. And so if you're trying to keep everyone really on the same path, with one arrow of which way you're going, you got to keep them rallied together, especially in those times of a, a busy time in the season or in your training schedule. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's great. I'm, I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, Steve, last week we, for our business piece, last week we talked about um, creating a name for yourself. We, we had discussed, and, and specifically in your area, you know, we're not, we're not talking like nationwide. Right now we're talking about your area, your city, your town, um, a, a certain square mileage, the, the individuals that you can affect. Uh, so this week, you know, one of the things that I want to address is now leveraging that name that you've created. Uh, and so you've spent the time to um, hone your skill, to become great in your craft, to begin to uh, speak with the parents and the athletes and the individuals out there in the community. So next we, we discuss, uh, you know, what, what do we do in order to, to leverage that piece? Um, so the one thing that I want to make sure that I say on the front end is, we're not trying to do this from a manipulative standpoint. That, that is not our goal here. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I had talked about in, in the last show was jab, jab, right hook by Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, this is kind of the right hook piece. We have jabbed and jabbed and jabbed. We've given free content. We've answered questions. We've done free training sessions. We've, you know, we've done all these other pieces. Now we're ready to make our ask. Now we're ready for that next piece. Um, so one of the things that I think is really important is, you know, and, and this comes from building up the relationships within the, the facility with clients, with athletes, with the coaches that you work with, is understanding the connections in the area. You know, uh, one of the things that I realized when I came here to New Orleans is it's really a small town. I mean, it, it seems like this massive city, but, you know, New Orleans itself only has 400,000 people. Um, it's not this big city. Everybody knows everybody. And so when there have been times where I've needed something, uh, an appliance fixed at home or uh, something going on with my car, I'm, this happened just this week. I actually got in a car accident, had to take my car to the body shop, realized that the brother-in-law of the guy who managed the body shop trains with us. I had no idea, you know? And so I think the first piece is understanding the relationships of the, the people that are within the facility and then being okay to ask those individuals because, you know, most facilities that we're in, um, those clients, parents are just as invested in you as you are in them. 
especially if you're a startup, if they've watched you grow for any period of time, they're invested. They want to see you do well. They want to be a part of this process. Allow them to do that. And so part of that is having that relationship, knowing who those individuals are. And then when you do need something, so maybe you need an introduction to the local club team. Maybe you need an introduction to the local high school's athletic director. Uh, Maybe it's just a hey, I know uh, your son is friends with so-and-so. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to meet this individual, to, to work with them, whatever it may be. But being willing to, to make that ask and leverage those relationships. We can do it from the other side as well. You know, there, there have been times where um, I've gone in and worked with, uh, so I'll, I'll give you an example. We've worked with over the last couple of years, East Bank Little League. Uh, back in 2019, they won the Little League World Series. When COVID hit, they didn't contact us. One of the things that we did is we contacted them and said, listen, we've put together this program for the Little League organization for the kids to be doing at home. They can be doing all their workouts at home. They can be, you know, they can see the videos that we've put together. Uh, And so we're leveraging that relationship to then get in the homes of all of those athletes, to make them a part of the BSP family and doing the BSP workouts so that when quarantine lifts, they're able to come into the facility and do their workouts with us that they've already begun on their own. Um, And so, you know, first of all, being okay with leveraging that relationship Second of all, making sure that we are uh, helping our, our clients, our, our um, you know, athletes feel like they're a part of this process by allowing them to help us out. Um, so Steve, you know, for, for you guys, I know that you guys are extremely connected in uh, the area there. You guys have been there almost 20 years now. Uh, you work with a number of the high schools, the clubs in the area. So, you know, when you think about this idea of leveraging the name that you've made for yourself uh, in order to have a greater impact. What, what do some of these action steps look like for you guys? What are you guys doing on a daily, weekly, maybe even a monthly basis to continue to open those doors? Yeah, I think one of the first things that we do very regularly is anytime we have athletes in from clubs that we're not aware of is trying to find out who their coaches are, where their program is from, where they're kind of based out of. Because in the Chicagoland, I bet this is like similar other places. Some of our athletes drive an hour to go to a travel programs practice. So they're all the way across the state almost to go to a practice. So we want to understand kind of like, are they in our general area or not? And then we'll ask them, hey, would it be okay if I reached out to your coach to then have a kind of a conversation about what you guys are already doing? And that's such an easy thing that we do all the time to just say, and then I might send them that email. It says, Hey, I'm coach Steve. I've been at TC boost and I've been training so-and-so for a while now. And they mentioned how much they enjoy your program. I'd love to connect and just kind of hear more about what you guys are doing and what the direction of your company is, whatever team it is. And then from there, you start to find out like, is there a need that we can fill? You know, and usually there's some component to what they do that we can serve some sort of small role in, whether it's as simple as an at-home training plan. Is it that we come in and we train once a week for the next five weeks at their facility? We help lead their warmups. And we just try and make that connection where, number one, then you ask, can we have an email list to just send out information about the programs we offer? And hopefully that goes well to the point that you say like, well, can we put together an actual plan for your team to do? And then it becomes, well, are we going to be affiliated with your entire program? And that's kind of like our steps of an action plan that we've done repeatedly in a variety of different kind of club sports settings. And it always starts with a parent or an athlete that just really enjoys training in the facility. And then it could build into, we start training their whole club but it takes a little while. It takes patience, but it takes the ask. I mean, that's such a scary piece sometimes for coaches when you're not used to having to like sell yourself or your, your service, it's hard to maybe make that first ask. And then each time you're just kind of asking a little bit more, you're giving and then you ask, you're giving and then you ask. But that one we've done repeatedly over the course of time. 
I know another situation that happens for us is people coming to our, our owner or me with opportunities out of nowhere. And Nick, I'm sure this has happened to you guys, but you've been serving their athlete really, really well. And all of a sudden they became an assistant coach in a program or they are on the board of a program and they want to kind of bring us in to, to talk to the board. And that one is, again, it's not that we had to do the hard part, but we have to be okay taking advantage of that opportunity. And Nick and I, before the show started, we were talking about it and he said, take advantage. And immediately, like we always go, well, not in a bad way. And you're like, well, yeah, no, it's, it's an opportunity. So it's either you take advantage of the opportunity or you let it go by. And so those kind of situations come along every now and then where you sometimes feel like, man, we did nothing to earn that, you know, but, but it, it's truly because you did a great job with that athlete and you've done a good job in the community and your name is known, but that happens often too, where then you have an opportunity to go to the board and talk about what you could do for their program or that specific team. Uh, and those are a different situation that you uniquely have to be able to be in a position to understand the commitment it would take to do that. Does it align with your company's uh, mission on a day-to-day basis, long-term vision of where you're trying to go? Because although those are great opportunities, sometimes they end up being just kind of distractions along the way that will set you back a little bit because of the commitment you had to make to that. People are in and out of the facility, so your facility doesn't grow the way it should have. Um, have you guys experienced that situation, Nick? Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're actually going through it right now. We had a um, softball player in the facility join another club, leave one club, join another club. Um, her dad ended up um, becoming one of the assistant coaches and just through conversations that he was having with the coaches um, and the, the board of that organization, he was talking about the workouts that she was doing. He comes in and he does training himself. Um, and so because of that, we've been out multiple times and we've done a couple of free training sessions for all of the age levels within those organizations. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're part of uh, as many baseball organizations as we are down here. We started out working with one of the athletes and slowly we uh, pick up a couple more athletes. One of the, one of those new athletes, their father is a coach of a team, then uh, the director of an organization. And so, you know, we, we've had a number of those come up um, as well as just some fluke things. You know, one of the things that we do regularly is when we go out to games, we put our flyers on windshields. And so as we're walking out, we're just uh, throwing a couple flyers on windshields, walking away. And I've had a number of people call me because of that. And so, you know, one, one of the things that I think is really important and we talked about in the beginning of the show is this all comes down to the relationship piece. Uh, you have to be, and we talked about this last week too, when we talked about creating a name for yourself, you have to be great at forming and cultivating these relationships. You have to be willing to get to know your athletes, get to know their families, be in constant communication with them. You have to care about your athletes, truly care. Um, and then they will end up wanting to serve you in other ways, whether that's bringing you more athletes or connecting you with other individuals. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the relationship piece. You know, if, if you're not good at creating the relationship, you might be able to get into that meeting with the board, into the meeting with these club coaches, um, but it never goes anywhere from there because you're not able to create that relationship and help them understand how you can serve them, not just what you can get out of it. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, if there was one thing that, that, you know, I hope that we can get across here, it's the ability to create and cultivate those relationships constantly in the facility, outside of the facility, in your free time, you know, wh whatever it is, but understanding that, uh, and again, I, I don't mean to say this in a selfish way, but understanding that every human connection you make, there's a potential, um, business, you know, uh, transaction or, or something that could happen later on after that. And again, I, I don't say that from a selfish standpoint, but it's just understanding that um, there, there are a lot of um, opportunities out there and you just have to be prepared for them when they arise. Yeah, that intentionality piece of how you are talking with clientele. If you're not learning about their, their work, if you're not learning about 
kind of if they coach their kids, what programs their kids are from, what boards do they sit on? If you're not spending some time really trying to learn about your clientele in that way, that's your first step going out of today is you can't try to leverage your name and take advantage of opportunities if you don't even know about your clientele that's in your own house. You got to be able to really learn about them, learn about their their network that they're in, and then understand, like, can you serve a need? Always come from that perspective. It's not selfish. You're a business, you're a service, and you're going to serve a need that someone has. And the better you can understand what that need is, and you can clearly articulate that you are the solution, the more often people are going to want to work with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Steve, it, uh, another, another great show. Uh, these always seem to fly, fly by. Um, we, we say this every week, uh, and, and we will continue to say this, uh, you know, the, this is the start to our conversations. Uh, please feel free to reach out to us, uh, so that we can have continued conversations. Um, if you are enjoying this show, be sure to, uh, give us some feedback, whether you're listening through iTunes or Spotify, but rate and review this show. Let us know uh, how things are going, if there are ways that we can better serve you guys. Uh, but ultimately, this is uh, just an opportunity for us to start the conversation. So um, without further ado, uh, you guys have a great week and we look forward to bringing you another show next week.